So this morning, uh, as you can see, we're going to be uh, looking at the concept of a membership in a local church. Um, we've had a lot of uh, brethren who have expressed their desire to be received as members of the church here uh, recently, which has uh, made that a subject of a lot of good conversation. Um, there's also been um, some who have not expressed that desire, who have been here and attended here for a long time. So a lot of good questions have been asked about this uh, principle or concept or application, however you want to think about it. And um, we, we say sometimes that uh, everything we profess and practice is open to being questioned and scrutinized. And we really do want that to be as sincerely true as possible. And we do need help sometimes with... Um, allowing that to be true enough to the point where uh, we are clearly approachable, right? If, if you are willing to read and study about any concept, we want to make the time that's necessary to make sure that can be studied out uh, because we do believe that God has given us everything we need to come into unity with each other, and that's, that's what we want. Um, so we, we want to work toward unity on everything that we practice, and this, this as well. Um, so the question, the question really is, is local church membership, uh, and that is you know, expressing the desire to be uh, known among a group as being a part of the work um, and going through the conversations to let that be um, officially known, is that an unnecessary tradition that doesn't really have basis in Scripture, or is it a necessary application of God's design for his church? That's really, that's really the question. Um, this, like a lot of things, I think can seem like it has no scriptural basis because there are no scriptures that clearly outline, hey, do this with church membership, right? Um, but like having a building, like having songbooks, like having announcements at the beginning of our assembly, like having a Bible class before this assembly, there are a lot of things we do that are necessary applications of biblical principles or commands. And even if you can't find it in Scripture explicitly, the authority is present in the fact that it's a necessary need in order to fulfill what we see God's design is. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's what church membership is, as we'll, as we'll see. And I also want to say, if, if what is in this lesson is not satisfying, let's talk more about this. Um, I would be willing to even give another lesson where maybe we can think about it from a more specific angle or give different light on it. This doesn't have to be the be-all, end-all of the discussion, right? So please be open to giving this more thought if this is not satisfying. Um, and if, if you've already studied this in the past, if you feel content with this concept, then um, I hope that it helps strengthen your conviction with more scripture. If you've never heard of this concept before, like if you've been attending here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I hope this helps you uh, understand this better and to know that this is something that we practice here. And if you've rejected this concept, I hope that it can lead you to want to talk about that with the members here. So that's, that's the goal of this lesson. And I think just some review things. These are things from last year. I did a series on the nature of the church, and these are going to be some review things. So if you're visiting or if you weren't there for that, this might be really unsatisfying with how quickly I pushed through some of these review concepts. So if you'd like to hear more about these things at this beginning review section, we can talk more about that as well. But ekklesia is the Greek word for the term church in the Bible. That literally just means assembly. It's not, it's not demanded of the word for it to be used in a religious sense. It's just a group of people who are called out into one place for a purpose. 
Acts chapter 19, that word is translated just assembly in terms of a riotous crowd who came together uh, because of Paul's teaching. And it's, so it's a noun referring to individuals, a group of individuals, not a group of groups. So there are not subgroups within a group of an assembly, right? That's important for the universal church where Jesus says, I will build my church, my assembly. Just by fundamental definition, that cannot be a group of groups within the group. It's individual people connected to Jesus universally. Some people in their language will say the church is so divided or the church needs to come together. That is not a correct application of what the church even is fundamentally. That's not, just not possible, right? They're thinking about a group of groups and not individuals. Uh, locally, we see like in 1 Corinthians 1-2 and it's all the other epistles, locally, there are local bodies of Christians who choose to come together and they choose to have a common work and identity. But just showing these things a little more clearly, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, um, you see the universal and the local church actually uh, in play in uh, the beginning of uh, the establishment of the church in Acts 2. In 2, verse 41, it says, So those who had, been, who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And verse 47 says about the same thing. Two quick things about the universal church. Man cannot add you to the universal body of Christ. That is what God does himself. The universal church is a church you cannot join yourself. You must be added into it by God, right? And that's the most important thing. And this isn't what we're talking about with church membership locally. We're not talking about getting someone saved or having somebody be added to the universal church, right? So the first thing is man cannot add you to the universal church. The second thing is this church, man cannot divide this church. So you'll hear sometimes people talk about how maybe in a time of history, the church divided. It's not possible. Christ can disfellowship himself from people. Christ can sever the connection that he has with individuals based on his word and whether or not people are remaining in him, right? But no, no man can divide the universal church. Local churches can divide from each other. But the church cannot be divided like a local church can be divided. Vertical fellowship, that's vertical, right? I always get that mixed up. Horizontal, vertical, right? Okay. So vertical fellowship with Christ, with God through him, man cannot separate or add you into it. That's with Christ to the individual. But the local church in verse 42 Notice, because of what they've received, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it continues on in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So the local church are Christians who, because of being near one another, and because of knowing and having been convinced of the love of God, they choose to bring that invisible love that has been received into visible application toward others of like faith. And they choose to take on common fellowship, common work, common identity. And just an overview of how this generally looks. You'll notice at Corinth, the orange circle is common identity. So they'll be spoken to as a group. But then within that group, there will be individual people mentioned. So at Corinth, they were tolerating a man who is living in sin in chapter 5. He was in the local group. He was a part of the group being talked about. 
He was involved in their work. But was he in fellowship with Christ universally? No. So the task of the local church is to, to do the best we can to live out the greater realities, willingly, of our fellowship with Jesus together. That's the major component of the local church. Another way to think about this is the universal church is God's gift to the world. The local church is God's gift to his people, right? So you'll see at Sardis, there's two yellow lines. At Sardis in Revelation 3, again, they're spoken to of being one, one church locally. But in Sardis, only a few had not defiled their garments. So the majority of the church in Sardis was not faithful or in fellowship with Jesus, and they're exhorted to repent, while individuals within that group are addressed as still having maintained their fellowship, right? And then on the right side, you have others who, because of circumstance, were not a part of a local church because of circumstance, making that to be so, but their fellowship with Jesus was still there, right? So the primary thing is universal fellowship. And the thing is, Without comprehending God's love and being moved by his love and uh, the glory of the church as he defines it, we can define things, we can map things out, I can put pictures that illustrate these, these truths. It's still going to be a fruitless discussion at worst or very difficult at best. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Well, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 first uh, just to give you the reason why Hebrews 12 is there. So Hebrews is a letter written to Christians who were withdrawing from Christ, but a visible evidence of that was they were withdrawing from one another. A visible reality of withdrawing from Christ is they were withdrawing from one another. In chapter 10, verse 32, he appeals to them to remember when they at once endured suffering, to appeal to them to go back to that, uh, back to that practice. But in chapter 12, Verse 22 through 24, this, I think, conveys a bigger idea of how the writer makes the appeal to them to join together and to be knit together despite these sufferings and these other things that could make them uh, withdraw themselves. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You know why we need the local church so badly? It's because we need perspective. So it's, you know, when we take up a collection, some people put in dollar bills, some people put in checks, a check, that piece of paper, probably worth like a dollar, maybe less than that. The paper is worth about that. A $100 bill, maybe, I mean, a lot of stuff is done to that paper, right? So a $100 bill, in the grand scheme of things, might be worth a few dollars, actually, in its real value. But ultimately, that is valuable because of an understood assigned value. We understood it, it represents something much greater than itself. Therefore, we trouble ourselves, sacrifice many things, and put ourselves through pain that we wouldn't otherwise put ourselves through to get those little tokens that represent these greater things that we value, right? So it's the same thing here in verse 22 through 24. When you look around here, is that what you see? Mount Zion, the city of the living God, myriads of angels, the spirit of the righteous made perfect, 
the general assembly of the living God, the firstborn enrolled in heaven? Is that what you see when you look around here? And in fact, local churches oftentimes will look the opposite of this. We'll look feeble. We're going to look so weak by appearance. There will be no draw by appearance to be attached to a local church. In fact, it'll oftentimes seem like you will be taking on even greater burdens that seem unnecessary the more you attach yourself to local Christians. Chapter 13, verse 1. You know what the grand application after these 12 chapters of saying similar things, trying to convey to these Hebrews the glory of Jesus, the glory of his ministry now in the heavenly places, the glory of what's been received in salvation, the glory of the location of where the righteous have been placed because of Jesus. You know what the grand application is? Let love of the brethren continue. Don't stop loving your brethren. So here's the next part of this. The world, and you could probably put Satan in there, will give you every possible reason to not place priority in attaching to God's people locally. And we just have to acknowledge that as an honest reality. But God's appeal, his eternal purpose, is to give you every reason to place as much priority as possible on attaching to his people in a way that reflects how you've been attached to God through his son. That's the local church. And again, we can need to be honest about this. The leaven of the world that says it's okay to just be a spectator in God's work. It's okay to only just be served or attend formal assemblies. Just come and take the Lord's Supper and check out, right? The leaven of the world that appeals to not attach as we've been attached is dangerous, common, powerful and very drawing. It is very appealing. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And again, I think this is fundamentally the issue that we have to be able to address and understand before we talk about clearer applications of this concept. The question is, what really forms the basis of our priority and conviction? That will be seen in how you treat the local body. That's, that is, in Scripture, the inescapable reality. How you value God and his work will be seen in the value you place upon his people locally. That's, that's simply the scriptural reality. Look at Philippians chapter 3, 17 and 18. It says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, uh, from which we eagerly wait a savior. Let's stop there. Notice that Paul's making a distinction for the Philippians. He's saying, look, there's a lot of people who walk. I'm going to suggest to you when he's saying many walk, he's talking about saints of God. He's saying there are a lot of people that you need to go ahead and disregard as being any influence to you at all. And you need to pay more attention to those who serve as an appropriate direction and model of the attitude in Christ. Before we look at these other scriptures, when I was working at UPS in the the training department, I would train employees to do their job. Uh, Most of my time was spent training unloaders who would unload 
like 50 foot trailers. They would go like deep in the trailer and just unload packages on a conveyor belt, really easy job. But the thing with an unloader is they, they unloaded packages onto a conveyor belt that went to a sorter. And the sorter and his work pace was based on his unloader. And the sorter had to look at these packages and put them on all these different belts, right? Some belts were high, some belts were low. And if you got a sorter who is lazy or who didn't want to work hard, here I would be training my employee and my boss's boss would be really exhorting me strongly, you need to be training these people to work hard, right? Train them to work hard. The sorter has this magic button, this magic red button. And when this red button is only supposed to be for emergencies, but you know what this red button was used for? If anything was happening that the sorter didn't like, they would slam this red button and 10 conveyor belts would all turn off. 10 conveyor belts. That's 20 employees who stopped doing their work. So what a sorter would do is he would slam on this red button and he would say, hey, we're paid by the hour. Don't you know that? And my unloader would have to make the choice. Either he lets me train him and help him understand the standard of our work, or he listens to his sorter, who's just another employee, and takes his example as the model. If my employee that I'm training wasn't going to follow my directions, he's fired before the training's done. Folks, we understand those concepts, right? Here's the thing. The leaven of the world is so common, is so common. Those who want to labor will oftentimes be discouraged by those who don't. You know why membership is necessary for one? We need to know who actually wants to work. We need to understand who is a standard of influence in the work here. Who are we going to let be the influence? That's one. Uh, for the sake of time, that took a lot longer to explain than I anticipated. Um, but in chapter 2, 1 through 5, particularly the first two verses, one of the points that I want to make is this conviction cannot be forced on anyone. That's the hard thing. This conviction can't be forced on anyone. I can't make you be more zealous to love God's people. I can't force you to want to be attached. You've got to make this choice based on verse 1 and 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, compassion, wanting to make the joy of God complete by being of the same mind, the same love, united in, in spirit and intent on one purpose. If that is not what's motivating me, it's not going to happen. I've got to get more convicted about these concepts. Otherwise, to be moved to love God's people it's not enough to guilt somebody into doing it. That's, it's not going to produce the conviction Paul's talking about here. And in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is in Christ. Christ is our model. If you look at chapter 2, verse uh, 19, he puts forward Timothy, but he mentions, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. It's easy to have an idealized view of the first century church like, oh man, they were all so zealous, everything was so perfect. How disappointing that Paul in writing to the Philippians about selfless, Christ-like love says, you know what? I don't have anybody to give you besides Timothy. So please pay a lot of attention to Timothy. 
That's what we're dealing with. There are a lot of brethren who will not serve as an example of these things. And we, talking to those who have dedicated themselves to the work here, we need to pay close attention to the model of Scripture so that we are not discouraged by those who refuse to work. Okay? 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The only way this will be done is if we can be moved by urging. Can you be urged to love the brethren? Can you be urged to get more involved on the basis of Christ's love? Can those truths change you by urging? If not, this is a fruitless discussion. You're going to stay where you are, and we will continue to work. Um, We're going to skip this next point uh, with Mark 4. Um, Old Testament principles. Uh, Turn to Ezra chapter 2. This really isn't a concept that I think only has its basis in the New Testament. In Ezra, uh, if you remember, they were coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. It had been laid desolate by Babylon, and they were coming back to restore the temple, worship, the keeping of the law, rebuilding the walls. And in Ezra chapter 2, you have the initial groups who are coming back to begin the work. And look at verse 61 through 63. Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, he was called by their name, these searched from among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. Why was that? Why was that done? You've got these priests, they're there, and they're, they're probably pretty confident that they really are true priests, right? Numbers 3 verse 10 says, any layman, any stranger is what that means, anybody not qualified, if they try to approach God's work, his holy work, put them to death. So was it important in a holy work, to show enough reverence to say, I get you're here, but can we make sure that you're actually a part of this before we accept you into this holy work? God's work is serious. To extend fellowship and to say, you can come out and in and out among us freely, we extend fellowship to you, that is serious. Fellowship to God this keeps happening. My phone wants to bring Siri up. Uh, sorry about that. But fellowship to God is a holy and reverent thing. And a question that I'll ask at the end of the lesson, to show less reverence for God's work, who does that appeal to? Who, who does it appeal to, to to compromise that reverence, right? And what if these priests, they just let them right into the work without any evidence of the fact that they were qualified to even serve in that work at all. Uh, Turn to um, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Ezra 10, or Nehemiah 10, I'm sorry. These are along the same point. Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, Verse 28 and 29. Ezra, uh, 
keep mixing it up. Nehemiah chapter 10, 28 and 29. We're in Nehemiah, not Ezra now. Just make that clear. Nehemiah chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen on themselves a curse and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. So at the beginning of chapter 10, coming off of Nehemiah 9, what the people are doing is they're creating this document, and they're all going to sign this document agreeing, hey, we agree to be held accountable to God's law. That's why we're here. And no exception was made. It mentions even in verse 28 that their children, their sons and daughters, all of those who had come and separated themselves did this. Why was this necessary? Why was this necessary? So another UPS story, when, um, when I moved to Alabama, I was working at UPS in Minnesota, and right before I moved to Alabama, there was a shooting in the facility where I was going to transfer. So when I moved there, the head honcho of that facility, when I moved into the area, he was really careful with hiring me. He was really careful. He wanted to make sure that I was going to run things well, and he was going to call people back in Minnesota to make sure that every T was crossed and every uh, every uh, I was dotted. Um, and if that hadn't just happened, he may have not been so careful, right? In Nehemiah chapter 10, the entire previous chapter, the entire chapter, is them reflecting on how the sin of the nation of Israel continued to leaven the nation over and over and over again. And over and over and over again, God had to wipe them out. And it was a constant test of his mercy. And the people knowing this and knowing how they themselves were guilty said, you know what? We need to make sure that we are agreeing together. We agree to be held accountable to this. Now you imagine somebody standing up and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. The law of God never said I had to sign any document here. You guys do your thing, but I'm not going to take any part of that. Well, we are going to agree to be accountable, and I guess you'll just uh, be set apart from all of that. right? What made them so convicted to do this? The better we understand the need for congregational purity, the influence and leaven of sin, and the call to make sure that we understand where we are and that we have an understanding of those who are in Christ, a good understanding, the more something like making an application of membership makes a lot of sense, right? Just understanding the damage and influence of sin and the need to be accountable is a gift from God. Right? And we'll see, that, we'll see that further. Nehemiah chapter 3. So Nehemiah particularly came to Jerusalem to build the walls. The point of this is workers were known by name. Uh, so in chapter 3, this is what can seem like a very boring chapter. But verse by verse, you start with Eliashib the high priest in verse 1. Then you have in verse 2, men who built Zericho, Zakur the son of Imri, 
Verse 3, the sons of Hassaniah built a part of the fish gate, and on and on it goes. They knew who was working. They knew them by name. You know, in the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 2, there were people who wanted to participate at times or wanted to comment on the work. And there were people in verse 20, if they were not known to be a part of Israel and there to work, you have no right or memorial in Jerusalem. You're not going to touch this work. But what we're going to do is we're going to make sure we know who's working and what they're doing, and they're going to do that work, right? And if you look at chapter 2, 11 through 16, particularly verse 12, Nehemiah initially came to Jerusalem. Verse 13 went out at night. Verse 14 passed through the city. And in verse 15, he went to the ravine and went through the valley gate and returned. And you know what he saw? A bunch of rubble. He was just on his animal and he went into places of the wall where his animal couldn't pass because the wall was torn down and it was a disgrace. But you know what Nehemiah saw? He saw a work that he could attach himself to to get that wrecked city into the condition he knew it needed to be in on the basis of God's promise, right? Hebrews 12. Yes, I know we're weak. I know we've got a lot of problems. I know that we can be doing what we're doing better. I know that. But you know what we need? People who understand God's promise and people who understand that if we attach ourselves to God's work on the basis of faith, God will help us become what we need to become. We need elders here. And we need brethren who believe that God can do that and can do that through us serving one another and attaching to each other in true, fervent love. Are you going to help us get to that point? Or will you just watch as it happens? God helped Nehemiah do this in a way where it was obvious God was the one working with them. If we pray and if we serve each other and love one another, this work will have elders. What we need is people who take fellowship and love seriously enough to go as far as possible with your ability to build up that work, to not get lost in the fact that it's feeble, there's rubble, the walls are destroyed. I get it. I understand. But again, Hebrews chapter 12. This, what you are in the midst of, is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. God will glorify himself among his people. Workers were known by name. There was clarity. They understood who was there. They understood who was contributing. There was clarity. So, with the church, should there be clarity? Should there be clarity in our unity? Should there be clarity in our purpose? Should there be clarity in accountability? Um, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. We'll start there. Should there be clarity? And this is where I'll suggest our task and responsibility is to make natural applications from clear purposes of God in his church. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. It says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
How is that possible? I'm going to give you a potential situation, and this has happened here and probably in every place where there are Christians. Sometimes I will get notified about somebody moving to this area who is a Christian, and I will never hear from them. I'll be told about them, but I'll never hear from them. So let me ask you this. If somebody is just in the area of Savannah or Garden City, let's say they're living right across the street, are they then in this command just because they live in the area? Like, are we obligated to pull them into the unity of the church? Or are we obligated to make sure that they're of the same mind and same judgment when they're literally making no effort to even attend an assembly even one time? How about when they attend rarely? Does just being there rarely all of a sudden mean you're in fellowship with the work? And just all of a sudden, magically, you are in the work, you are striving towards unity. We can try to pull you there, but there's not that sense of clarity, right? Does a church need to have clarity? I'd say an answer for this verse, the only way it's possible if the answer is yes. That is literally the only way this is possible is if we do something to make sure there is some sense of understood clarity who is here to work towards this unity to be of the same mind and the same judgment. How do we even begin to fulfill that call? Chapter 5, 6 through 13. And it's the same question. Uh, Should there be clarity in our unity, in our purpose, and in our accountability? And I'll just put forward accountability is one of the most important things about a local church. Accountability is not just tell me when I've sinned and find out my sin. Accountability is also admonition and encouragement, knowing what people clearly need in order to grow closer to God, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 13. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact leavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers and with idolaters, for then you would have need to go out of this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? For those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I'm just going to ask you this question. This brother that they were being told to remove from themselves, what if he keeps attending at the local church? What if he keeps attending? They assemble and he's there. It's like, oh, I guess the old leaven's not cleared out. Uh, are they supposed to, like, grab him by force and every time he comes, like, throw him out of the place where they're assembling? Again, what if somebody moves into the area and they attend one time and they're living in sin and they don't tell us? Are they leavening the group just by being in the area at all or being in the vicinity of the group? Folks, if that's the case, it's impossible to be unleavened. It's not possible to be unleavened. How do we even begin to make sure in verse 12 we can make a judgment that we are ensuring 
in the best of our ability, despite mistakes we may make, despite overlooking things, how can we do our best to make sure we are an unleavened group, free from sin? How does that even happen? Right? And here's something else that I think is important to note about this. Verse 12. If we can judge, and if we're commanded to make a judgment of those within, by natural extension, we are also in the need then to make a judgment about who is in fellowship with the church. If we are commanded to make a judgment about who's within the church, we also need to make judgment about who we extend fellowship with to allow them to work within the church. The one demands the other. So again, it's not specifically said, oh, you need a membership for this. It's a natural application of what this is saying. And it is impossible to follow it if we don't have some kind of clarity of understanding who is in the work, who are we extending our fellowship with. Chapter 12, 12 through 21. This will be the last scripture we look at. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, chapter 12 is talking about both the universal body and the majority of it, but in some ways, there's lessons for the local body. I just want to look at, particularly, um, I'm going to look at a different set of verses than I have on the board. Um, I'm going to look at 20 through 26, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 20 through 26. He's talking about how the body has many different members, but it's still one of itself. And in verse 13, we're all baptized into that body, which would be the universal church. But I think in verse 20 through 26, there's some applications for the local. Verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Uh, Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable whereas the more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So he was talking at the beginning about the universal church. So let me ask you a question. Verse 26. If one member of the universal church suffers, do all members of the universal church suffer? So he's made a transition from talking about the nature of the universal to making, that, making those same, at least very similar applications for the local church, right? Again, the local church unveils unseen realities of our universal fellowship in our local fellowship with one another, right? So in verse 25... How do we make sure there's no division in the body? Again, if somebody moves into the area, if they're just automatically in the group, just magically by being in the area, then if they never attend here, there's a division and we don't even know it. And if that situation makes the point sufficiently, there has to be some way, there has to be an acknowledged understanding. Otherwise, again, somebody just becomes a part of our fellowship and we don't even we don't even realize it if somebody doesn't automatically enter into these things just by living in the area without anybody knowing it that demands that there is some sense of mutual agreement and understanding clarity 
there needs to be clarity so that when one member suffers, all suffer with it. There are things that happen here that if all you're doing is attending these assemblies, there are ways that we are suffering together you don't even know it. There are needs that are heavy that you're not even aware of. And it's not that every member here is like doing a perfect job of, of living out these things. I'm not. But the idea is we can at least acknowledge who is choosing to want to be associated with these things and to be encouraged and exhorted and admonished and realizing there, are, there is a need that God has revealed. I'm weak. I need others to help me to be accountable. There's, there might be sins in my life that I'm not even aware I'm practicing or I'm neglecting. And I need God's design of accountability to protect me. That's what we're trying to do by having a membership in this group. So there needs to not be any division. We need to have the same care for one another. That's the call for the design of the body. And with all of this, if you look back at verse uh, 21, if you live here, if you're in this area, if you've been regularly attending here, you can't prevent the fact that you impact everybody here. You do. We need you. This isn't just, again, this isn't trying to guilt trip anybody. It's just trying to appeal to the heart to see that this is so important that we have unity like the scriptures call us to have it. It's important for you and it's important for us. There needs to be clarity. We need you in whatever capacity you are able to, to be a part of this work. Not just for the sake of your own faith, but for the sake of our faith as well. You cannot help but impact the brethren here by being here, especially when you can be a part of God's work in this area. God is working in this church. We need, we need to facilitate and work with God as much as we can, as passionately as we can, so that God's promises can be as fully fulfilled as possible in our midst. So again, who benefits from ambiguity? Who does it appeal to? Is it that we should compromise necessary applications so that those who don't want to allow them can feel more comfortable? Is that how we have unity? Or is it that we try to pull people upward, as Glenn would say, calling them upward? I would certainly appeal for the latter that we try to appeal that if you are not a member here, we certainly would love to work with you. We would love to encourage you and help you and serve you and cry with you and rejoice with you and hurt with you and bear your burdens as you allow it. But you have to allow it. You have to allow it. And we urge you, please allow us to bear your burdens. Please allow us to love you more fervently. Please allow us to have clarity in our fellowship together. Um, so that's the lesson for this morning. If you're here and you're not in the universal body of Christ, you are not in a place of safety. God's wrath is set against those who oppose his son, and the way to be saved has been clearly portrayed in Christ, in repenting of our sins, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, being baptized into Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
If you know the call, I would appeal to you to obey that call today. And if there's anything else that needs to be made known before the church, please make it known while we stand and sing our invitation song.